This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Welcome back. We are examining for the second week in a row the letter penned by Martin Luther King Jr. from a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama in the spring of 1963. For context, for those of you timelines elude the way that they do me, this is four months, roughly, before his famous I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C., and a full five years before he was assassinated in 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. And the civil rights movement, of which King was a cornerstone, obviously, was, was complex for all parties involved. Right? It is easy for us, 60 years hence, to look back and assume that all but the most racist people were pulling in the same direction. Right? But sadly, this was not the case. The, as we started talking about last week, the means and methods of the desegregation, equality, and anti-racism movements were not widely agreed upon. Right? In fact, the impetus for this letter was the public chastisement, thinly veiled, of King for his methods to achieve true equality. Right? By the very same people he considered brothers and was trying to help. Right? He picked up his movement and he went from Atlanta, Georgia to Birmingham, Alabama to try to help, to, to desegregate and find justice in one of the most racist and unjust cities in America at the time. And when we left off, we had just examined the causal chain that King had laid out in response to what essentially boiled down to the question of why do you have to march in protest? Why not just negotiate? Question. And as we mentioned, King talked about a crisis. He sought to create a, quote, tension that would draw men up from darkness and into understanding and brotherhood. And what was interesting about that quote, remember, he he juxtaposes prejudice and racism with understanding and brotherhood. Right. This is a, a, a wonderful literary tool that he's done here. He has taken four things, two negative and two positive, and he's laid them against each other for comparison. And in doing so, King implies that, as we, if we read the, the letter literally, and if you have it in front of you, I encourage you to look at this, King implies that the opposite of prejudice is understanding. I'm going to say that again. The opposite of prejudice is understanding. Or, put another way, people are prejudiced because they do not understand those against whom they are prejudiced. So think about that. Think about just that statement there alone. That the opposite of prejudice is understanding. If you want to become non-prejudicial against someone, say you have a prejudice against someone, anyone, doesn't matter who, ask yourself, how well do you understand that person? If you feel prejudiced against, how well do you think that person that is prejudicial against you understands you? I suspect the latter example is easier to relate to, and I bet your answer to that question of how well do you think that person who's prejudiced against you or doesn't like you or wants to hold you back understands you, I bet the answer to that question is not real well. That person doesn't know me from anyone, right? That's why you hear that 
that that joking statement that people make like you don't know me in response to people who give give them a hard time right why because they don't right we we know very few people intimately well you you know yourself you probably know your partner you probably know the the people that you're close to but even the people that you're relatively close to how well do you really know them how much time have you actually spent really not just with them but really trying to understand them and I think if you think about it that way, you'll realize that there are very few people in this world that you truly understand. So King is saying that our lack of understanding can lead, does not necessarily have to lead, but can lead to prejudice. And in this case, the prejudice that is against the black community from the white community in Birmingham, Alabama, is at least partially due to a lack of understanding. Right? And he does the same thing for racism and brotherhood. He's saying that people that are racist do not necessarily view the people they are racist against as brothers. They don't see them as equals, right? Because what's a brother? A brother is an equal. A brother is someone with whom you share a history, someone with whom you share a life. He's arguing that people are racist, at least in part, if not completely, because they do not view the people against whom they are racist as equals. And that sounds like a, yeah, of course, that's what it is. Matt, that's a big part of it. Yeah, absolutely. But this, the way it was put, that tension between those prejudice and racism and understanding and brotherhood is what King is driving at here. King's next rebuke of his naysayers comes after the criticism that, well, a new administration is in place in Birmingham and that he ought to have waited to see what that new administration would do to improve the situation. Shouldn't shouldn't we wait? Shouldn't we wait and see? We have somebody new coming into power. Shouldn't we wait and see what that person does? And King's reply is that while different in some ways, that both the outgoing leadership and the incoming leadership are both segregations, right? Both interested in maintaining the status quo. One might be packaged a little bit more kindly than the other, but at the end of the day, Let's be real here. This was not a great, I think he uses the term, will not bring the millennium to Birmingham. And he says, quote, History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But, as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups are more immoral than individuals. And just wow. I mean, what, what a statement, right? What a, I mean, we know that truth, and it's a truth under which we all live, that when put just so, really drives home the point. Groups are more immoral than individuals. And this, listeners, is the reason that racism and other forms of injustice lasted as long as they did. People may change, but groups of people, organizations, both formal and informal, are far harder to reform. This is why entities like the Environmental Protection Agency, the Food and Drug Administration, the National Transportation Safety Board, and laws like the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act or the Food Safety Modernization Act were created. Because organizations left to their own devices rarely implement dramatic change that disrupts the status quo or impinges upon their power. And King asserts further that we know through painful experience 
that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. It's a powerful statement. That's a rallying cry. That's him saying, again, earlier in the letter, he sought to unite the efforts of those in Birmingham with those who viewed him as an outsider. And he's assuming at this point that everybody's on the same page. And now he's saying that we're not going to be given the freedoms and the justice and the equality that we so rightfully demand just out of the goodness of anybody's heart. Our oppressors are not going to all of a sudden wake up tomorrow and as a collective group go, man, we got it wrong. We've been doing it wrong all these years. All the things we've said, all the things we've written, all the laws that we've passed and the practices that we've had, every single one of those things was wrong. And we've talked about this, listener, right? We've talked about the sunk cost fallacy, the idea that, well, this is how we've always done it. We've talked about that in previous episodes. We've talked about how hard it is to override that, even in our own personal lives, right? Even in an, as an individual, it can be very hard to turn away from something that we've done a certain way for a long time. Now imagine how much harder it is to steer a group, right? Even the leader, let's say as, a, as an outside example, that the local leader of the Ku Klux Klan at the time, the KKK, a notorious racist organization, had all of a sudden woken up the next day and decided, been doing this all wrong. Is that individual really going to be able to affect significant, meaningful, long-term and lasting change in an organization like that? And I think you know the answer. I don't, I don't think they can, right? A person who is that steeped in those beliefs and those attitudes for that long is going to have a very, very hard time turning the organization. And that is what King is saying, is that organizations or groups are more immoral than individuals. And another criticism that King came under was for breaking laws, like the ruling by the circuit court judge that forbade, quote, every imaginable form of demonstrations. Remember, I mentioned the First Amendment last episode and that we'd come back to that. Here's why, right? King systematically dismantles the argument that breaking laws is wrong. And King responded that breaking unjust laws or morally wrong laws is acceptable because those laws are fundamentally wrong. And lest too loose an interpretation be given to, quote, unjust and any and all inconvenient laws be broken, based on his definition, he clarifies that, that term further, saying, quote, an unjust law is a code that the majority inflicts on a minority that is not binding on itself. A just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow and that it is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal, end quote. And so here the distinction is very clear. Laws, because they are laws, are not unimpeachable if the root of those laws is rotten, right? If those laws harm a group to the benefit of another. In Birmingham, segregation laws prevented equal rights to a certain class, black people, while allowing free reign, comparatively, to another class, or white people. Right? King's logic, therefore, is that those laws are unjust and ought not to be followed. Now, of course, there are still consequences for violating laws, and he suffered eight days of those consequences for them just the same. But his point is valid nonetheless. King criticizes his criticizers later, saying that, quote, the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. 
And this is a direct rebuke of the criticism that his actions were disruptive. His actions were doing more harm than good. Why not operate within the constructs of the system as they exist? Why not sit down at the table with the mayor and the local governance team and negotiate? Why not use the courts? Now, of course, none of that works if the mayor is willing to talk out of one side of their mouth and promise things and then not enforce them on the other side. There's no use in talking to local law enforcement in an attempt to gain equal justice for blacks and whites if the police are going to say that they'll do that and then turn around and not do that. There's no point in going to court if the judges that sit behind the bench, arguably the judge that made the original ruling that every imaginable form of demonstration be disallowed, that there cannot be an operation within the system that evokes real change. Something has to give. The social contract has been broken at that point. The leaders, the law enforcement, and the judges operating unjustly violate the social contract. And I mean, ouch, like what a distinction that we should still be wary of to this day. As much as this attitude still exists in terms of both racism and other injustices is, well, don't rock the boat. No, 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 that's fine, but not that way. We agree with you in principle, but don't do it that way, right? How often do we hear that? And and really, the last quote of Kings that I want to highlight for you is as pertinent and applicable today as it was in 1963. Around the world in highly visible and also oft forgotten or neglected areas, there are those who seek to roll the clock backward. To oppress their fellow man for one reason or another, none of which are ever good, to hold in shackles, physical, social, financial, or otherwise, those who they deem to be less worthy. King cautions us, late in the letter, to never accept that. He says, quote, We must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God, and without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. End quote. We have to be ever vigilant for this. We have to be ever vigilant for injustice. And to make those minor corrections. Minor injustices are generally minor corrections. Major injustices require actions like Martin Luther King Jr.'s. And so, listener, if you're, you're like me, and these episodes have been hard, right? They've been tiring, introspective, and perhaps even, maybe even a little disheartening as we compare 1963, consciously or not, to where we are presently. I hope that, like me, you're also able to find them to be motivational and uplifting and a, a, a thrust, a nudge from beyond the grave by Martin Luther King Jr. into a better tomorrow. And by his example from his letter, from our learnings from these last two episodes. May we be diligent and tireless, as he says, in our efforts to make the world, even in the smallest way, better tomorrow than it is today. And were we to measure, as the measure of our days, our lives against that, meaning do we make the world slightly better today than it was yesterday? Will we make the world slightly better tomorrow than it is today? I suspect that we'd live quite a good life indeed. One, I dare say, of which Martin Luther King Jr. would be proud. 
Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome your feedback. And thanks as always for listening.